All right. Yes, I am limping. If there's any pre-med students that want to talk afterwards, I have no idea why I'm limping, really. So, all right. My name's Jake. That's what they said. Uh, I'm glad to be here with you guys this morning. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of math for a Sunday morning already. When Bobby was talking, all those numbers, I had like flashbacks of math class and story problems. All right, if you give half of what you give, I'm like, I can't, I can't handle this. But uh, I would encourage you to lean into that. Uh, you will not regret being generous. And what God is doing here in mean, this community and on the campus is a fire you want to keep pouring gasoline on. And we as a church have benefited greatly from your generosity up in Cedar Rapids in having the vision and uh, just the generosity to get us started. So we're forever grateful for you guys. Um, and we're thankful to, and we just say, keep going, continue to lead the way. God's doing amazing things. Uh, amen. All right. Uh, how are you doing? Not like, how are you doing? Or you have a good week or a good Thanksgiving, but how are you doing spiritually? How are you doing as a Christian or, or as a follower of Jesus Christ? Like if you had kind of had to give yourself a grade on how you're doing, how, how would you assess that? What grade would you give yourself? How do you think you're doing as a follower of Jesus Christ? And it would be really fun if I could sit down with every one of you individually and just like, I want to know the, the metrics that you're kind of going through even to answer that question. Like, what's your assessment? Is it like, well, I really struggle with this particular sin and I haven't in a while, so therefore I'm a good Christian now? Like, what makes you think you're doing well or what makes you think you're not doing well when it comes to following Jesus? Uh, and, and as Mark said, we're going to continue march through Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 10. And there's a couple words that get used uh, in this, in our section today, that you might be able to, re to relate to. Um, the author kind of says, you're wavering, um, and they were neglecting some things. And it's not like you've abandoned your faith or anything, but, but maybe those two words kind of could, you can identify in your walk with Christ. It's not like you've abandoned faith, but you're kind of wavering. There's not like this passionate, whole heart, like this zeal for the Lord when it comes to following Jesus. It's just kind of half-hearted. You're wavering. You're getting kind of wrapped up in otherworldly things that's kind of pulling you back in, in your, your passionate pursuit of Jesus. Or maybe you're neglecting some things you shouldn't be neglecting. Again, you haven't abandoned your faith. It's just not the priority it should be. It's kind of more of a back burner thing. Well, if that's the case, how do we stop that slide or that drift or that kind of half-hearted pursuit of Jesus and go on to, if you remember chapters 5 and 6, or the end of 5 and the beginning of 6, go on to maturity? Like, how do we crank it up? How do we, how do we pursue a passionate following of Jesus that our life would appropriately reflect the gospel and kind of get out of this, this half-hearted funk of just kind of wavering or neglecting things we shouldn't neglect? How do we go on to a life fully committed to Jesus? And what would a life fully committed to Jesus look like? Like practically, what are the things that we should be doing? And, and more so than just what should we be doing, what's going to motivate us to actually do them? So Hebrews chapter 10, we got 25 verses. Um, I really want to get to the last three verses because we get some real clear calls to action that we need to understand. But I'm going to read all of them because it's important to hear these calls of action in their context. And I got um, now 31 minutes. So we're going to go uh, as fast as possible because you guys stay on time better than we do up north. So uh, Hebrews chapter 10, you ready to go? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Verse 1. 
Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things. I want to stop there. We will get done on time. I want to stop there. It says it's just a shadow of the things to come. We need to understand this. The law is not evil. It's not bad. It's not contrary uh, to, to the will of God. It's a foreshadow of good things to come. The problem is for that the author's addressing is they've fallen in love with the shadow more than what the shadow represented. They fell in love with the, the system, the law, not what the law was pointing to. They went Peter Pan and kind of the shadow took on a life of itself. Like if you have little kids and you give them a, a present and they open it and you spent money on this and they end up playing with the box more than the present, like that's what's happening. Like there's some packaging that God has to bring in the savior of the world and when he comes, you're turning back and wanting to play with the box. You're wanting to play with the packaging of, of what brought our Savior into the world, but, but you've, you've lost what it's really about. So he says, there's only a shadow of good things to come, and not the reality itself of those things. It, cannot, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifice they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Like, you keep doing it because it really didn't take away sin. That's why you had to continually do it. He says, for it is a, or excuse me, go back to verse 3. But in sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. It's like, that's, that's the point. Like, when you come to this sacrificial system, you bring your goat, you bring your bull, it's a bloody worship experience, and what is it supposed to do? It's supposed to remind you, hey, there's a sin problem. There's a sin problem. See you next week. Still a sin problem. See you next week. Sin problem. And it's bloody and it's communicating. Like there's a holy God who's not okay with sin. And sacrifices have to be made. And the point of the whole ceremony is to kind of remind you, like he says, to remind you of sins. Year after year. He's kind of has the day of atonement in mind. Like every year you come like, yep. Sin problem hasn't been solved yet, still exists, hasn't been solved yet, but there's this reminder of sin. Then verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, You did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then he said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. After he says the above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. Those are different kind of offerings the law tells you to sacrifice. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second by this will. Um, this will of sending Jesus and giving him a body coming to earth, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Um, so when you hear that word sanctified, um, if you've been around church world long enough, sometimes you're familiar with these theological words like sanctification, which communicates this ongoing process of being made holy. Like when you become a Christian, um, you get the Holy Spirit. I know this, if you're not used to this, it sounds weird, but God kind of takes up residence in your life and he's like, I'm going to begin to change you from the inside out and I'm going to produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You're going to grow in patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. Like, I'm going, to, I'm going to transform you. And it's an ongoing process of being made holy. But here you might notice that he says that you have uh, 
been sanctified. For by one offering has perfected for those who are, oh no, let me back up. This man, after offering a sacrifice once for all, he, where did I stop? Okay. By this will, thanks, verse 10. By this will, we have been, been sanctified, have been sanctified. So it's a past tense thing. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, you have been made holy. Like you're not practically perfect yet, but in the eyes of God, you have been positionally made holy. So when God looks at you, you what, he, what he sees is holy, innocent, righteous. Now, how does that happen? It says you have been sanctified or you have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all time. Like, this is what Jesus has accomplished. Like, you will grow in your holiness as a Christian, but positionally, you have been made holy in God's eyes. Good news? Okay, you can be excited about it. It is good news. Um, And then he goes on. He says, verse 11, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins, but this man... Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And there's a contrast that's being made between this ongoing work of priests who are standing to Jesus who offers one sacrifice, and what does he do? He's not standing, but he's... It's a trick. It's he's sitting. Right? It's the opposite of standing. <laughs> I know it's nervous. I don't want to get the wrong answer loud in church. He's sitting, right? So he's making this contrast. Like there's this ongoing work that these priests are doing. They're always standing. They're always at work because the work's never done. But guess what? In Jesus, it's done. It's finished. He, he sat down when he, was, when he was finished. It says, every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, the Lord says, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sins. Isn't that good news? I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is Forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And you kind of see this repeating of like once and for all, he perfected forever. Like there's this completion behind it. And then he says, I will never remember their sins. Now that's a contrast between what we read back in verse 3, I believe, when he says the whole point of these sacrifices year after year is to remember sins. Like, that's why we do it, to remind you, hey, you got a sin problem, you got a sin problem, you got a sin problem, but now he's saying, no, I'm not going to remember him anymore. There's, there's no longer any need to kind of dwell on your sin because it's paid for, it's taken care of. But we have been given something as a church to remember every time we get together, right? This is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood that's shed for you. He said, do this as often as you get together in remembrance of me. So I want you to remember something. But in the old system, it was like, remember there's a sin problem. Remember there's a sin problem. Remember there's a sin problem. But now after the sacrifice of Jesus, like, I want you to remember something different. Remember you're forgiven. Remember you're forgiven. Remember you're forgiven. Remember you're loved. Remember you're loved. I know I had a bad week. I know you did. But this is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood that's shed for you. Remember that you're loved. And he's calling something else into, into our memory here. 
and communion. He says, now where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Here's what he's telling them. So you have a group of, of Jewish believers who have drifted from the gospel, kind of falling back into uh, Jewish practices, drifting from following Jesus. Um, and he's saying, listen, from the beginning of this book, why, why would you ever walk away from Jesus? He, he's a better Moses. Uh, he's a better priest. He, he's the mediator of a better covenant. Uh, he's, he offers a better sacrifice. Why would you ever walk away from Jesus? I mean, the biggest motivation for us to stay faithful to Jesus is Jesus. Nothing's better than Jesus. And he's, he's, he's kind of beckoning these people like, what are you doing abandoning Christ? You're going back to empty things. Nothing can compete with Jesus. He's better than everything you're running back to. Don't, don't go there. Do you not know that in Christ, like he will never again remember their sins, that, that there's forgiveness of these, that you're being uh, made sanctified, like you're being made holy, you're presented holy, like he accomplishes this? I mean, this is the greatest news ever, right? This is the greatest news ever. And the very next word is therefore. Okay, therefore. Since you got this mind-blowing, amazing truth of the gospel, therefore. What's our response to this? Verse 19 it says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have the boldness or the confidence to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated or he has opened for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, he's just kind of summing up once again this amazing truth of the gospel. Since this is true, then he's going to go into these three let us statements. And this is what I want to focus on, these, these three, three let us statements. Okay, since this is true, let us what? what? What is it that we're supposed to do? There's three of them that we'll take a look at. The first one is in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's saying, let us draw near, like personally, let, let's draw near to God. And what we have to understand is there is a status change that happens through what Christ has accomplished for us. As he offers himself a once and for all sacrifice. We have been sanctified. We have been made holy positionally before God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, anyone who's in Christ is what? Awana points? Nobody? He's a new creation. Yeah, somebody's lipping it like, come on, say it boldly, right? You know it. You're a new creation. Or, or Romans chapter 8, like uh, we've been adopted into God's family. We can say, Abba, Father. Like we have this belonging with God because of what Christ has accomplished. So what he's saying is, hey, since this is true, since like Christ has accomplished this on your behalf and you are a child of God, you are positionally holy before God, act like it. Act, no, don't just act like it. Act like it with boldness. Or have a confidence in your position before God. And where does that confidence come from? You? Your behavior? How good a week you had? How, are you on track with your Bible reading plan? Is that where you get confidence from? No, we get confidence through Christ, what he has accomplished for us. It's not our performance that gives us confidence. If it is, I mean, good luck with that, right? But it's we can look to Christ and what he's accomplished for us. It's like, that's why I can have boldness. That's where my confidence comes from, that I can draw near to God. Now, there's, there's an illustration of, uh, like, have you ever been around a dog who hasn't been treated well, and you reach out to pet the dog, and it kind of 
cowers back because it's like he doesn't know how this is going to go. It's different than uh, being around a dog who's really well-loved and you come home and that dog just kind of runs up and licks your face. He's saying, listen, you are well-loved. Act like it. You don't need to cower from God like that you may be punished. The reason for your punishment has already been paid for. You are well-loved. Therefore, act like it. With confidence, have a boldness. Like, go in, go right up to God. Because the way is now open. Because before he says, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way. Or your translation may say, it is open for us. Well, that's different if you remember uh, last week in chapter 9, verse 8. He said, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place has not yet been opened or disclosed. It's not open yet. Like, you can't just walk into the holy of holies. You don't get to do that as, as sinners. Like, you know, melt your face, right? You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, you don't just get to go before God like that. And nobody in this would ever think you have that kind of access to God. But now in Jesus Christ, he's like, oh, yeah, just go right in. Like to the Holy of Holies? Yeah, you bet. The way is opened. You are positionally holy before God. Have this confidence and boldness to walk right in. Basically, because of the gospel, we should have a a personal uh, pursuit of closeness to God. Like a confidence. Like, I, I will be accepted by God. And we should have an attitude of confidence behind that. Here's the next let us statement. Verse 23 It says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. So he says, hold on or hold fast or tightly, uh, have a firm grip to our confession of hope. Now, you might think he would say confession of faith. Like that seems to make more sense. Like a confession is, this is kind of what we believe. This is our doctrine. This is our confession. But he doesn't. He says, hold on to your confession of hope. And what he's saying is our confession, the things that we believe, are what give us hope. It's the truth of the gospel that produces the hope. And he's saying, hold on tightly to that. And there are a lot of things in this world that can steal our hope. And you may not put it that way, but it's the things in this world that kind of give us this despair or depressing outlook on life. Like it robs our our optimism of the future as Christians that we should have. Like you turn on the news, you, you just you go to work, you interact in this world, and you just begin to get depressed or in despair of all the brokenness around us that you see. And, and it's happening to them because he's saying, don't waver. Like, it's under, like you're wavering from this hope. You're, you're getting down. You're like, don't, don't let go of the hope that you have. You almost get like institutionalized. You just get used to brokenness and sinfulness and depravity. Like, you just expect it, right? Because we have the saying, right? When we say, well, that's life. When you say that statement, you never think you're saying like, well, isn't that great? No, you say it because like something bad happened. Well, that's life. Expect it. That's life. Like, we get accustomed to brokenness. And we get institutionalized to the idea of like, that's just what there is. That's just life. It's broken. It's, it's messy. It's sinful. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And we need something to kind of hold on to that gives us hope that's beyond that. There's a, a movie that kind of comes to mind when I think of being institutional. I have one of the greatest movies of all time, Shawshank Redemption. You guys ever seen Shawshank? 
It's been out for a while. It's done good. So it's like three people are going to recognize this illustration. Uh, like one, one an Oscar. It's good. All right. Bobby saw it. All right, here we go. Shawshank Redemption. There's this beautiful scene uh, in the movie where uh, Andy Dufresne, kind of the plot is Andy Dufresne gets um, wrongfully accused of murder, gets sent to Shawshank prison, uh, two life sentences. He's in there for a long time, like 20 years. He eventually escapes. Spoiler alert, you've had your chance. Uh, <laughs> you should still see the movie, though. So there's a scene in the movie where uh, he's kind of, he's an ex-banker, so he's doing pe- the guard's taxes, and he's kind of made some friends that way, so he's getting some special privileges, and he's in the warden's office, and he's been writing to get this library built for the prison, and he's kind of going through all the books and stuff that he got, and a guard that's watching him went to the bathroom, and he locks the guard in the bathroom, and then locks himself in the warden's office, and he pulls out a record, and he has this record player that came for the library. And he puts on this Italian opera, and he turns on the whole intercom system to the prison, and he just pumps and blares this opera throughout the whole prison. And it shows every man kind of out in the yard and in the shop and working in the prison, everybody just stops. And they just, they just stand there and listen to this opera. And the narrator in the movie says, like, during that moment, like, we forgot we were even in prison. Like, we felt free during that moment. Well, this doesn't go well with the warden, so he knocks on the door, and he's like, doesn't knock. They pound on the door, and then uh, he's like, you better shut that off, and he reaches to the record player to shut it off, and he, he smiles, and he just cranks it up. Well, then, of course, the guard breaks in the door. They haul him off, and he's got two weeks in the hole in this little cell that he's got to spend two weeks by himself, and when he gets out, the next scene is he's in the cafeteria with his buddies eating, and they said, oh, Andy's out from the hole. How was it? It says, easiest two weeks of my life. It's like, e- there's no such thing as an easy time in the hole. And he's like, well, I had Mozart with me. And they go, oh, they let you tote that record player down there with you. He's like, no, I had him in here and in here. And like, what are you talking about? It's like, haven't you ever felt that way about music? And Red, his friend, says, well, I used to play a mean harmonica, but it doesn't make much sense in here. And Andy Dufresne says, no, here's where it makes the most sense. Like, like we can't forget. Like, forget what? Like, forget that life is not about a prison, that there's more to life than this. Like, we got to hold on to these things. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, I'm talking about hope. And Red says, let me tell you something, friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. It's going to drive you insane in this broken world. Like, it's best just to accept your circumstances. It's best just to put your head down and just try to make it through the next day. And we kind of fall into that. But what the author of Hebrews is saying, like, no, hold tightly onto hope. Like, have a firm grip onto the things that give you hope, the truths that we believe that give you hope. Here in this broken world is where it makes the most sense. And it's interesting in the scene, it's, it's this kind of breakthrough moment is through music. This is, this is where it's like kind of wakes you up that there's, there's some beautiful things in this life. And what's interesting about Christianity or unique about Christianity is we are a singing people. We get together, we open God's word, we sing. We sing like, we're a singing group of people. And we sing in the weirdest circumstances. Like we, we sing uh, in prisons. When you read through the book of Acts, in the Colosseum, when you look throughout history, when you're about to be eaten by a lion, like, let's get together and sing. Like, is that a good time to have, sing a song? Like, that's what Christians are doing, right? In the slave quarters, uh, on plantations, 
God's people sang in hospital beds? Like, we sing. And you, there's nothing you can do to stop us from singing. Like, throw us in the hold, you know, do whatever. It's like, no, it's in here. Like, we have a song in our heart. Like, we understand the gospel, and it gives us hope. And he's saying, cling tightly to that. Don't ever let go of this hope. But it's not just about our own comfort. Um, the word confession, don't think of it like just things that you believe. Think of it as the act of confessing. Or a better translation of the word might be profession. Like hold tightly to the profession of hope or professing the act of professing that hope. Basically, the author is saying, don't shrink back from proclaiming the hope of the gospel in this broken world. Don't, don't shrink back from being somebody who proclaims the act of confessing where you found your hope. Basically, this world is Shawshank. And a lot of people have become institutionalized. They're just accustomed to this brokenness as if this is all there is. And Christians need to be like Andy Dufresne, who's going to like crank out the gospel message that gives hope despite the consequences. Throw me in the hole. I got my song and you cannot take it from me. And more people need the hope that I have. That he was saying, don't shrink back. Don't waver from being somebody who's proclaiming the hope of Jesus Christ. Then he goes to verse 24. He says this. Here's the third let us. And let us watch out or stir up one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. And when he says that about... Uh, you have a group of people that in this church, some of them were neglecting the gathering or getting together. Um, that struggling attendance is not a new thing for us. Like even in the first century church with life happening and pressures and other things, there was people who were neglecting getting together. Um, I think it's not a priority that's driving them. And then for us, like nowadays you add in a, global pandemic, and there's a greater tension of should we gather? Is it important? Um, do, do we need to do this? And this passage is saying, yeah, it's important. Like, it's so important. Don't you neglect it. Don't, don't neglect it. It is, it is essential for, our, for us to gather. And there's this warning not to neglect it. Now, I was recently reading a 2016 Harvard study. Uh, don't don't think that I'm smart sitting around reading Harvard Medical Studies. It was in a book that I was reading uh, that referenced this 2016 Harvard study uh, where a professor of epidemiology stated, service, he's talking about church service, service attendance may be a powerful, underappreciated health resource. They found that church going boosts your immune system, decreases blood pressure, and lowers your cholesterol. Basically, going to church weekly is good for you. Beyond physical health, though, the study found churchgoers, like regular churchgoers, are less prone to mental illness, report higher levels of happiness, and have better sex lives. So even on that last one, guys, you'd be like, hey, we're going to church, right, as a family. Let's do this for, for Jesus, right, for Jesus. We're doing that. But, but that's, not, like, that's not why it's essential. That, that like goes, oh, these health benefits. Like, no, 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 that's not why it's essential. There's something deeper that he's pulling them. There's a specific type of relationship that the gospel propels us to have with one another, which requires some frequency and consistency in connecting. He's saying, hey, since this is true, since this gospel is true, push each other towards the goal of knowing 
and honor in Jesus Christ. Since it's possible to know him, since the way is open, like let's together run towards that as it's the passion and pursuit of our life. And I love how he says consider. Like get creative. Think how can we push each other to be better Christians? Like, like think through that. And that word um, to watch out, he says to provoke um, or to stir up, or maybe it says spur on. If it's used negatively, which it is, that word can be used negatively, um, it would talk about like a strong emotional irritation. Like I'm ticked. That's, that's kind of what that word would communicate. Used positively like it is here. He's saying, he's talking about strong motivation, like the kind you see in sports. Like we're going to push each other to be better. We're going to challenge each other. We're going to like really get in each other's faces and we're going we're gonna to see each other succeed together. That's the kind of community that he's talking about here. So guys, an appropriate response to the gospel is a commitment to community. Like don't neglect this. Don't neglect this gathering. Don't neglect your connection group gatherings, like in the name of other things going on in life, like there's so many things polling for your time and attention. Don't, don't neglect this. It's so easy to make life about things life's not about. And you get wrapped up in the busyness and you start neglecting things that should not be neglected, things that should be prioritized. Guys, a strong commitment to community is an appropriate response to the gospel. And here's why. We need each other to be the type of Christians we're called to be. You are never going to be the, the quality a follower of Jesus that you are called to be by yourself. Like you need other people to push you that. And ultimately, that's what life's about. Honoring Jesus. Hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. And what's going to make that really clear is when Christ comes back. Because that's the motivation he gives them. Look at the rest of verse 24 and verse 25. It says, not neglecting gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. The day is the, the return of Jesus. It's like that's going to that's show priorities real quickly. And what's going to matter in that day, it's like, did I honor you? Did I live for you? Like, they push each other towards that. And it's like, all the more, as you hear the day, like, there's this increasing urgency to that. So basically, you have these, um, these three let us statements. Let's draw near to God. Uh, let's, let's watch out for one another or, or stir each other up. Let's, let's hold fast um, to our, our profession of hope, our confession of hope. Um, basically, he's calling us to proclaim the gospel in three specific ways. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to preach the gospel to others, and you need to preach the gospel to each other. Like, you need to preach the gospel to yourself so that you personally draw near to God with confidence, that you know, like, I will be accepted because of what Christ has done for me. Like, you need to remind yourself of this truth for your own personal pursuit of Jesus Christ. And you need to preach the gospel to other people that don't know Christ, that have institutionalized themselves to this broken world and are unaware of the hope that can be found in Jesus Christ. And you need to preach the gospel to each other because it's easy to kind of waver and just want to fit in and kind of get lost and make life about things it's not really about. And you need to kind of push each other, spur each other on with the good news of Jesus Christ to be better, more passionate followers of Jesus. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to preach the gospel to others. You need to preach the gospel to each other. So now if I ask you that question, hey, how are you doing as a follower of Jesus? And you've got a, a, a metrics to kind of grade yourself on. Like, this would be a great thing to assess. 
I'm not going to spend time now, but like later with somebody else, with your family, with your connection group, like how am I doing in these categories? How am I doing as preaching the gospel to myself? How am I doing it in preaching the gospel to other people? How am I doing in community, preaching the gospel and encouraging other people uh, in this church body? Like wh- where am I short at? What am I doing well in? What, what do I need to grow in? How could I grow in that? Like this would be a great thing to assess when it comes to how am I doing in following Jesus? But for our time, I want to get to what would motivate you to do this? Like, why should you do this? Why should we have these radical lives of, of commitment to pursue God relationally, personally? Why should we speak boldly of Christ and the hope found in him to other people that don't know it? Why should we kind of invest our time into one another, spurring one another on to be good followers of Jesus? Like, why, why should we do this? Look back at verse 19 and 20 and 21. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have the boldness or have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then he goes into these let us statements. And here's what it's important to get. Before the author tells us what to do, he spends more time telling us what Christ has done. Like before we get to these three verses, three or four verses that kind of, hey, let us do this and let us do this, he spent 21 verses, or you could argue nine and a half chapters, just like, let me tell you what Christ has done. Let me tell you what Christ has done. Let me tell you what he's accomplished on your behalf. He just, he just lays that foundation of what Christ has done. And are there things we need to do as Christians? You bet you, there are things that we need to do as Christians. But those things should always be seen in light of what Christ has done first. That's why he says, hey, since, since Christ has accomplished this, since this has been happened, then now let's respond to that. Like he wants them to understand the gospel. And if you understand the gospel, then in light of the gospel, in response to the gospel, then this is how we should live. And and I'm telling you, church, if you're trying to change, like if you're trying to just become a better Christian and you know the things that you need to do and you're just focused on what you need to do, that is the wrong starting point and you will be frustrated. You need to start with what has been done for you in Christ because godly obedience is always a gospel response. Godly obedience is always a gospel response. And it can seem counterintuitive. Like, I know I need to grow in this area, and I know I need to grow in this area. Yes, we'll get to that. But the very first thing you should do is just let me kind of spend some time dwelling on what God has done for me, what Christ has accomplished on my behalf, that my obedience would be a response to that. Because he doesn't even let go of that in these verses where he's commanding us to do these things. Like, let us spur, let's draw near to God. Let's, let's hold fast our confession of hope. Let's watch out for one another. Why should we do that? Why should we draw near to God? Because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Comes back to what Christ has done for us. Why should you draw near to God? Let me tell you what Christ has done. Why should we hold fast our confession of hope Without wavering, because he who promised is faithful. You can speak boldly about Christ because he's real and he's made promises and he keeps his promises and he's faithful and you can trust him. 
Again, even, even the action he calls us to, he connects it back to what has been done for us. And why should we watch out for one another and stir each other up to love and good deeds? Because this one who laid his life down for us and is faithful and true, he's coming back. He's coming back. And when he comes back, it's going to be real clear what life is and is not about. And then we're going to wish we had people spurn us on living to that day, living in light of that day, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So, so church, can you imagine a church, let's say this church, this church, and the reputation of this church, the people of this church is like, oh, those people are close to God. Like they have this confidence in their relationship with God. They pursue him passionately. Oh, the people at that church, they're always preaching the gospel to people. They're always telling people about the hope they have in Jesus. Like you cannot steal their hope. These people can be on hospital beds and they're singing. Like that's, that's those people. Oh, oh, the people of this church, like if you want to see a group of people that really love each other and are like taking responsibility for each other's godliness, having the hard conversations, spurring each other on, oh, that, that happens in that church. And you want to know how that comes to be? Not by just focusing on community and evangelism, It's an outflow of people who have just been absolutely blown away by the gospel. So let me leave you with this. When you read things said in Hebrews 10, the idea that you have have been sanctified, that you have been given positional holiness before God, that God through Jesus Christ is not counting your sins against you anymore. He doesn't remember them anymore. It's been paid in full. Has that sunk in? Has that sunk in? I mean, in here? In here? Where no one could ever take it from you? And does your life reflect that? I pray that it does. Let's pray. Father, to... um, to this room and myself included that can identify with words like wavering or neglecting where it's easy for us to make life about things that life's not really about. I pray that by your spirit you would remind us of the gospel and how beautiful it is that we would have an overflow of drawing close to you professing boldly a hope and being a community that stirs each other up towards you. We pray this in your name. Amen.